This episode of The Minimalists is brought to you by nobody, because advertisements suck. This podcast has bad words. <laughs> Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Minimalist Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus. And together, we are The Minimalists. Is minimalism good for the soul? Today, we're going to talk about routines and best practices to create a fit soul. Now, what does that even mean? Hmm. Maybe you're like me. And you're skeptical anytime anyone uses a word like soul or spirit. Yeah, it gets a little woo woo y, huh? I, I feel like you, you don't have the same allergic reaction that I do. No, I don't. I mean, I was raised uh, to, I was taught, I should say, that the soul is flesh and blood mm. and the spirit is something different. And in fact, you know, if you look at like the Greek or the Latin word for soul, it does reference like the actual body mm. and a spirit is a little bit differently. So, okay. so yeah, but regardless, there is, I have this ability to hold space for even the woo-woo-y ideas yes. without actually believing them. So when I hear someone like Ben Greenfield talk about the soul and spirit and, and, and those things, it may not be exactly in alignment with my beliefs right but i can hold space for the context in which he is referring to those things i like what you're saying there because what i've done recently is held my beliefs a little bit more loosely mm. as of late and mm. it makes that same space and so today we're actually ryan and i aren't going to navigate your soul don't worry right <laughs> but ben greenfield and rebecca shern are joining us today to help us navigate these waters and maybe put some language around the soul and spirit and and what it means to have a fit soul. That's what we're going to talk about on the minimal episode today. We actually recorded this while Ryan was out on vacation, but then on the maximal episode, Ryan's going to come back with me and we're going to talk about the minimalist diet, which is, uh, well, you have to tune in to get the secret recipe. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, we're actually going to be talking about different types of, of diets. We're going to talk about getting rid of dogma, letting go of dogma, but also understanding what does it mean to be healthy. And, and of course, Ben and Bex will join us for that as well, two experts, because Ryan and I certainly aren't experts. We've talked to quite a few experts about health, about wellness, about food, about exercise, and we're going to be tackling that on the Maximal episode today, talking about the minimalist diet over on Patreon. Speaking of Patreon, we just launched new monthly simplified pricing, mm. which has been overwhelmingly uh, lauded by our patrons. It removed all the confusion. A lot of people were like, well, I don't get it. Is it. Am I paying every week, every time you release an episode? So now Ryan and I can release a thousand maximal episodes a month if we want to, <laughs> and you don't get charged any more money. So it's all benefit for you. You also uh, have the ability now to do a 10% discount if you do an annual uh, if you sign up for an annual membership for Patreon, oh, wow. a lot cool. of people have switched over to the annual side of things to save 10% there. Of course, that keeps our podcast 100% advertisement free. Now, you might notice something different. We're, if you're watching this on YouTube, we're in a sort of transition period. 
The video you're about to watch is in this temporary space that Ryan and I were in because last year during COVID, our studio, the building our studio was in closed down. Mm. We found a beautiful new studio space. Yeah. And thanks to our patrons, we're able to have it. But you see these backdrops behind us. Jordan, go ahead and look at Ryan. You can see the backdrop behind him. We're working with a talented set designer named Beulah. And she's helped us with these backdrops, but also she's helping us with what's behind the backdrops. Mm. These backdrops aren't backdrops. They're wrapping paper. I love it. It's a brand new gift that we're going to give to you. So if you're watching this on YouTube, by the way, if you're watching on YouTube, make sure you go down there and you, I'm not going to tell you to click and subscribe and all that other click, stuff. Click, like, subscribe, no. share. Yeah, don't do that unless you're really compelled to. I, I don't care. But what I do care about is go click on 1080p. Sometimes they automatically degrade your video quality and it drives me insane that's so funny man because when i go to see videos uh-huh like if it's a little grainy like it doesn't it doesn't affect me at all but i know that you have such an eye for detail yes that you want to make sure that our audience gets the best viewer experience possible right and yeah. we're going to be upgrading to 4k eventually but in the meantime you at least want it to be as high hd as possible on mm -hmm. youtube let us know in the comments or don't whether or not you are watching this in 1080p. But you will notice if you are watching this on YouTube, this different backdrop. And that's because we have this beautiful new studio space. We're having sound panels installed, new for custom furniture built. So in the meantime, we're using these old sound panels. It's actually strangely cluttered in here. In fact, we're getting ready to do an episode, <laughs> Ryan, about recluttering. Yeah. Because what happens when you declutter a space, unfortunately, one of the easiest things to do is not pay attention, not be intentional. What happens? Mm, it gets recluttered. Recluttered yeah. without even knowing it. And so, by the way, that's what happens to all of us. Your house was empty before you moved into it, most likely. Mm -hmm. You're the one who cluttered it or recluttered the space. Mm. And so we're going to do an episode about that. We also have some episodes coming up about computer clutter, about shopping addiction, and also fake fame new Instagram fame. And so if you have questions about those, send your voice memos to podcast at theminimalists.com. We'd love to answer your questions on those upcoming episodes. And now this transition episode, you're going to see in a moment when Ben and Bex come on the screen, we're going to be in a temporary space. But then Ryan and I will be back in this space. Mm. We're going to give you some listener comments and insights. We also have a beautiful added value segment for you today and some other stuff to talk about as well. But before we get into the, this episode, the meat of this episode, here's a teaser for you. The Minimalists are hiring three people for this new studio space here in Hollywood. If you're interested, there's an office internship, there's an audio video person, graphic design internship. The deadline to apply is June 23rd, 2021. You can find all the details at theminimalists.com slash interns. If you are interested, we'd love to hear from you. Enjoy this conversation with Bex and Ben. You're listening to The Minimalists. I'm here with Bex and Ben, Ben and Bex. We're talking about, well, we're talking about a lot. We're going to talk about routines for a fit soul. Ben, I wanted to start with uh, talking about your new book, Fit Soul, which uh, I think people can actually oh. download the, the electronic version for free. Is that right? Yeah. I saw it yeah. on your website for it's free. free. Even, even the print version, I, I, I didn't want to make any money off that. And this isn't one of those gimmicky, go online, give me your email address, you know, make money and just charge shipping and handling for a book. I literally wrote that book, decided I just wanted to touch as many lives as possible 
And um, so yeah, you can download it for free at fitzholbook.com or you can get the physical version, but I, it's just enough to cover my cost of printing it and shipping it basically. Well, I'll, so. I'm just going to read the, the first paragraph on the back here and then we're going to go over a few pages from the book here. Do you sometimes feel that no matter how much wealth you accumulate, toys you own, friendships you make, or physical and mental mountains you conquer, you're still at the end of the day unfulfilled? You sound like a minimalist I, I, I speaking. Well, I want to go through a few things here in the book. So there, there is a page here on page 42. You talk about the dangers of transactional relationships. And, um, you know, obviously love people use things is sort of mm -hmm. th th that's our mantra. With respect to relationships, too often we are using people. Can you talk about the dangers of transactional relationships? Yes. And to contextualize that, every chapter of that book and really most of the articles, I, I write and release an article every Sunday morning. Uh, I, I write to scratch my own itch. I've identified weaknesses in myself or tendencies in myself, all things that I have addressed or talk about in that book, for example, spiritual unfulfillment or OCD-like tendencies or disconnection from family or a feeling of disunion with God or how I treat other people in the case of this topic, transactional relationships. And I find that in the same way that when you're uh, angry with someone and you sit down to perhaps write them an email and you write them that email, and then all of a sudden you feel better and you figured out the situation and you don't send the email. That's kind of like my writing process for the past year has been, I have this problem. I'm going to research the heck out of it, talk to a lot of smart people, read some books on it, do some podcasts on it, and eventually write an article about it. And as I'm going through and doing that, as we know, one of the best ways to learn is to learn in a fashion in which you're thinking, how can I teach this to others? Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I've written the entire book from that standpoint because it's really been a personal journey of enlightenment for me using my writing to kind of solve my own problems because I figure if I struggle with this, then there's got to be at least a handful of other people who do. And in my case, what I found was that from a transactional relationship standpoint, I was treating my employees in a, a very curt and, and short and impolite manner because most of my interactions with them were virtual, meaning that I was acting at the time that I wrote that chapter as a virtual CEO with my supplements company, Keon, in Boulder, but me living in Spokane, Washington. And so I had a ton of of chats via email or Asana or Slack or whatever, but it was always very much just like, you know, do this, mm -hmm. do that. Mm -hmm. Yes, no, no, that doesn't look correct. Please fix this, this, and this. You know, no compliment sandwiches. No, how's your day going? No, maybe pick up the phone call and, and have a chat with someone. None of the same type of experiences that you would have if you were looking at someone in the eye, you know, in the flesh and blood, treating them one-on-one -on -one because it is a lot more difficult to have a flesh and blood transactional relationship than it is to have a digital transactional relationship because it's far easier to treat people as zeros and ones and digits and avatars simply because some of the realistic personal experience is extracted when we're talking to people in a virtual scenario. And furthermore, when we talk about transactional relationship, as, as you just alluded to, 
Joshua, the the idea is that we also can tend to see people as stepping stones, as something that we can use to get to the next level, whether it be a promotion or whether it be a raise or whether it be relying upon that person as a customer who's going to produce income for you. Right. When if instead you are operating from a position of pure value, of pure relationship building, of pure, really from a golden rule standpoint, loving others as much as you would want to be loved, you become much more transformational in your relationships. And I believe it was Benjamin Hardy who first coined that term on a Medium article that he wrote about transactional versus transformational relationships. Mm -hmm. And a transformational relationship is one that grows and thrives and abounds as you become to know that other person uh, physically and mentally and spiritually. And you, uh, you, you're, you're full of positive energy in those type of relationships. You're not seeing that person as a giant walking dollar sign or as a digital series of zeros and ones that you email with, but as a real flesh and blood member of the, of the human race who's, who you interact with on a, on a daily basis and who deserves your love and your respect and your forgiveness. And so, yeah, I think that because it's so easy for us to create micro businesses now and see people as transactions and as dollar signs and also interact with them virtually, we all run a little bit of a risk, a little bit of a temptation to treat people transactionally when they should be uh, uh, when, when they should be treated transformationally. And that, that's what I explore in that chapter. The book seems to be centered around these uh, uh, ideas that, um, well, I, I, I almost paired it with this spiritual disciplines journal, which we can hold up here. I don't think it's available yet, is it? I believe it is, okay. yes, as of the past couple of weeks. Okay, yeah. okay. Well, by the time this comes out, then it is available. Um, but when, when I look in here, you, you center this journal around four different uh, pillars. Can you talk about those pillars? Yeah, you know... I'm certain that you have addressed the topic of gratitude on this show before sure. and all the, the biological and social and emotional and spiritual benefits that arise from a daily gratitude practice, including greater amount of empathy for others, lower blood pressure, lower plasma cortisol levels, uh, increased productivity, often increased success because you are identifying or at least looking for those things that you could be grateful for, thus introducing more positivity in your life and also uh, accepting, you know, new opportunities that arise that you've identified only because you were looking. Like there's, there's all sorts of benefits of gratefulness. We could do a whole episode on that alone. And being aware of many of those benefits, I started a daily gratitude practice years ago, right? You know, probably five or six years ago, you know, every day writing down one to three things that I was grateful for. And, um, I began to develop that morning gratitude practice into also journaling just a few other questions. Mm -hmm. uh, now that entire journaling practice has blossomed not only into this new book, this new journal called the Spiritual Disciplines Journal, but also as a core part of my connection with my family. Every morning we do this journaling practice together. Every evening we do this journaling practice together. And it's been amazing for bookending our day together it's as a family. It's not that elaborate. It's like you're spending an hour it's, in the morning, it's, hour it's, at night. It's pretty brief. So we, we meet typically around 8.30 a.m. in our living room or in the summer on the back porch underneath the sunshine. And we meditate together as a family for 10 minutes. 
and then we pray together, then we do our journals. And that's just how we start each day. And then we end every day in the boys' bedroom with a guitar song, with a story, with a little bit more prayer, and then with doing the other part of our journal, the evening part. So the morning part is not only what am I grateful for, but also because I think that sometimes when we set positive intentions, you know, I'm good, I'm great, I'm wonderful, gosh darn it, people like me, I'm going to go make a million bucks today, and I'm going to own a red Corvette by next Saturday. These positive intentions that are helpful, you know, from a reprogram the subconscious and a manifestation standpoint, uh, can often lead us, however, into thinking of ourselves quite a bit during the day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the second question that I answer is, who can I pray for or help or serve on this day? Mm-hmm. So you start the day with, what am I grateful for? And who can I pray for or help or serve? Mm -hmm. With a couple of subtle nuances there. The process of a gratitude practice is the most powerful when what you have written down that you're grateful for is something specifically that you received that you feel as though you didn't actually deserve. Something you received that you feel as though you didn't actually deserve. My grandfather called me last night and talked to me on the phone for 20 minutes. Didn't expect that, didn't deserve that, Mm -hmm. but it happened. I'm super grateful for that this morning. Or, um, you know, this morning I, I woke up and sometimes it can be something as simple as the sun is up and shining and beautiful. I didn't do anything to make that happen. I didn't deserve that, but there it is greeting me once again this morning, right? It can be something that simple for the praying or helping or serving someone. It doesn't have to be, especially if you have a hyper busy day, you going over and like taking out your neighbor's trash and mowing their lawn and, (laughs) you know, and putting a bottle of wine in their mailbox, right? It can, it can, can, yeah, it can be, but it can also be, you know, and we know this is powerful even from a, from a quantum physics and, and the positivity of photonic energy that we send out to the universe standpoint, you can simply knowing that your friend back in Florida is struggling with, let's say, uh, you know, they're, they're ill. You can simply say, I'm going to pray for that person. Whenever, you know, I wear this bracelet, this $5 bracelet from Amazon. Mm-hmm. So when I write down who I'm going to pray for, help or serve, if it's someone specifically going to pray for, I look at my bracelet, I'll say a quick prayer for them. But then whenever I look at my bracelet again during the day, it reminds me to keep sending positive energy and prayers towards that person. So it's almost as though you're starting your day with a great deal of empathy, gratitude, and serving others. Mm. And then at the end of the day, you also have two questions that you respond to. The first is based on this process uh, from the Jesuit religion they would have called it examine. You know, a guy like Benjamin Franklin and many other great philosophers and thinkers used to self-assess, self-examine at the end of the day. What good have I done this day? And what could I have done better on this day? So that we not only identify areas in which we really rose to the occasion, in which we were we were more productive, or we were more impactful, or we were more meaningful for other people, or even something as simple as I planned my lunch ahead of time, had it all prepared, and that worked out really well because mm-hmm. I was able to be hyper productive and have a wonderful nourishing meal during lunch and not be rushing around, you know, trying to figure out what I was going to stuff in my face at the last minute. But these habits stack, right? You're like, ooh, that was a good thing that I did this day. Let's let's make sure we repeat that. And that process of self-assessment also lets you see how you're spending your seconds, your minutes, and your hours during the day because we know how we live our days is how we live our lives. And then the other question, what could I have done better this day, allows us to learn from our mistakes, learn from our failures. 
it, it can become negative, and I, I, I sense where you're going with this, but go ahead. Well, I'm just thinking that uh, if we're always seeking betterment, then there is a sort of lack of fulfillment with respect, because you're already born complete, you are complete, you're, you are complete in an empty room, you don't need more stuff, you don't need more friends, you don't need more relationships. Anything, any of those things can augment your experience of life, but if I feel as though I need those things, now all of a sudden it becomes a chase, just like materialism is a chase. Betterment can be its own sort of chase. Full, so fully, how do you avoid fully that? Fully agreed, fully agreed. Um, the, the question, what have I failed at today or what could I have done better today is not a question that is necessarily designed to mm, to make you feel as though you didn't do enough or you need more. It's designed to identify certain patterns or habits or rituals or routines during the day mm. that are not serving you or others best. Okay. And it can be something super simple. Like I found myself writing for nearly, I think it was like four or five days out of that week, didn't practice my guitar today. And at the end of that week, I told my boys, because sometimes if I see something repetitively being written, I tell them, I'm never going to write this down again. I commit, I am never going to write this down that I could have done better today returning to my music because I know it fuels me. I know I love it. I know it relaxes me at the end of the day. I know it's good for my brain. And ever since that day, even if it's for two minutes at the very end of the day, after dinner, when I'm tired, I pick up my guitar and I play. Cool. And sometimes it can also be, you know, I open up Facebook or Instagram or Twitter before I ate the frog this morning, before I did that thing that was actually important, uh -huh. and I, I could have done better on this day. That process of self-examination allows you to identify those things that, that, that really weren't serving you or others best, and to commit to not repeating those failures or to at least learning from those failures in the future. And I, I find that it's, that's been powerful, and in no way, as, as long as it's framed in the light of how can I rise to the occasion, something that introduces like negativity into your life at the end of the day. Yeah. And then the, the last question, uh, so we've got gratitude, service, and self-examination. And the last question is, what is one way that I lived out my life's purpose today? What is one way I lived out my life's purpose today? And, and you then, have a you have an exercise in there yeah. that helps people identify because right. a lot of people are asking, you know, what is the purpose of my life? As though right. there is a assigned purpose, and, mm -hmm. and that's that's not what you're talking about here. And I think it's good for some people. It's debilitating because they're like, well, I, I want to know what what's the prescription, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, Kapil Gupta would say we are smitten by prescriptions, and. And it's not that you were born to be an astronaut or an accountant or a musician or, or, or whatever it is, is that you can find something that is purposeful to you. So how do you help people find what that purpose is? Yeah, you are right. I, I knew that if I just asked people, what's one way you lived out your life's purpose statement, that that question would be for naught if people don't actually have a purpose statement. And so I have a series of exercises in the book, such as uh, answering questions like, what did you enjoy to do when you were a child? What makes time go by quickly for you right now? Um, what is it that... Um, that uh, that that is a unique skill set that you feel you were born with that just comes easy to you. You know, for example, in my case, when I was a kid, I loved to write. I would I write stories, right? And and a lot of like, my wife's dyslexic, and she would she would paint, right? So now you know my wife paints and makes amazing art, and I write. But writing also, like 
I can write for what seems like two minutes and I'll look at the clock and it's been a half hour. Makes yeah. time go by incredibly quickly for yeah. me. It's very self-actualizing. Mm-hmm. I, I know that it's something I was born able to do decently well. Something I loved to do when I was a kid. Something that makes time go by quickly now. So I know that probably part of my purpose statement should include writing you know, meaningful content that helps people. And that's also important that your purpose statement is contextualized in a spirit of loving others, right? So it should never be in the same way that your business statement, in my opinion, should never be like, we're gonna make you know, a billion dollars by Q4 of 2030. It should be instead, how many lives are you gonna touch? How are you going to impact people? And how many people are you gonna impact? How many customers are you serving, right? And, and the success and, and the, the finances and the money will follow that. And so you you figure that out and then you say how you're going to love other people with it. So like my current purpose statement is to read, write, sing, speak, uh, compete and create in full presence and selfless love to the glory of God. Right. Or my son Terrence as he wants to inspire people to joy with creative art. My wife's is I want to minister to my family and have our home be a pleasant and hospitable place to be. Right. And so at the end of the day, um, if, you know, if my wife spent the day hunched over an article trying to write something that she could put on the internet about how to make her roasted chicken, that would probably not be something she would identify as a purposeful activity versus if we were hosting a dinner party and she was downstairs because she loves to do this, right? Like making an amazing meal and greeting people as they come in and, you know, and, and you know, toasting with a glass of wine to all of her girlfriends, et cetera. Like that is, that, that's purposeful for her. Yeah. Well, this is and so, so critical because people often see, oh, this person's doing that thing and therefore I'm supposed to do that as well. Prime example I have in my life is uh, our filmmaker friend, Matt Diavella, who, who directed both of our Netflix films, is one of the most talented, he's, he's the most talented documentarian I've ever seen. And, I mean, by far. And yet, after he finished the first film, he's like, all right, I need to figure out what to do. It looks like uh, these guys, Josh and Ryan, they, they're, uh, they published these blog posts. Uh, I guess that's what I should be doing too. And it's like, no, man, you're, you're an, a master filmmaker, but as soon as you see someone doing something else, and you see, quote unquote, success in that realm, we feel as though we're supposed to do that. But it wasn't his purpose as you right, call it right and when when you know that you're going to be writing down how you filled out your purpose statement for that day, how you fulfilled your purpose statement that day you are programming your subconscious right you know that throughout that entire day you're seeking out opportunities in the same way that you're seeking out opportunities to be grateful you're seeking out opportunities to help other people you're committing to learning from the failures of the previous day and also learning from what you did good that previous day you're seeking opportunities to fulfill your purpose statement and it's it, you know seldomly but it happens there are times when at the end of the day, I sit there and I have a really, really hard time thinking of how I lived out my life's purpose. And I'm like, geez, I didn't wow. write. I didn't like go play tennis or compete. I didn't create anything. It was just kind of like a do, do, do day. Yes. And, um, and, and so Which it, is dangerous it can. In the moment, it feels like you're doing right. something purposeful. It apes right. the form of purpose. Right. But it's actually the opposite. It's it's work for the sake of work. Right. It's keeping the hands moving without actually doing something purposeful. Right. And so in, in, in a sense, it can also be a way of learning from your mistakes. If that ever comes up, and you're like, geez, I don't know how I did live out my life's purpose statement today. So so that's the that's the journal. And uh, what I did was I, I made a day for each of those questions and you fill them out. And, you know, usually it takes about five minutes or so in the morning and five minutes or so in the evening. And uh, just put it all in the book and, and bound it up and just, just kind of launched it as the Spiritual Disciplines Journal. Bravo to you. Yeah. Is there a, a link between sex and spirituality? 
That's a hard oh, pivot. Jeez. <laughs> well, well, we're talking about spirituality. Um, I love yeah. it. I love I, it. I do think that sex is a highly sacred act that in many cases these days is bastardized as a an act of mutual masturbation, right? Mm. Many couples do not mm-hmm. engage in breath work or tantric practices together, such as eye gazing or learning how to move energy up and down their spines as they are making love or um, even, even doing things leading up to lovemaking, such as, um, you know, either doing uh, breath work together or meditating together. And I'm not saying that sex, I'm not saying that there's anything against quickies, right? Like sometimes, sure. you know, like, you know, me and my wife just want to slip away and have some fun together and, you know, scream and thrust and play loud music and, and just kind of like, and then, you know, 15 minutes later, we're done and, you know, she's off to tennis and I'm back down to the office to work on my article or whatever. Yeah. But really from, from a, from a a real spiritual standpoint, sex is an extremely sacred activity. The only activity in which we engage that has the potential to introduce a human soul into the world. One of the few activities Mm. in which we engage in which we are deeply physically in a very intimate fashion connected to another human being. We know from, therapies such as, you know, Reiki or or healing massage or anything like that, that there's a great deal of photonic energy and life energy that is moving from one person to the next when they are touching each other. And I I think that sometimes in an era of Tinder and one night stands and quickies and all these, you know, things like, you know, sex toys and porn, things that can sometimes turn sex into almost a very carnal and fleshly activity or be distracting from you focusing on your actual partner that uh, sex can become, I guess, kind of in the same way that we talked about how relationships can become transactional. Mm -hmm. Sex can become transactional to a certain extent when sex, especially if it's sacred sex done in a deep spiritual and meaningful and planned way with your partner can be something transformational. And again, I'm not saying everything has to be an epic sex romp, you know, hotel or, or staycation with, you know, yoga and breath work and plant medicines and, you know, and oxytocin nasal spray and whatever else beforehand and, you know, and eye gazing and tantra and breath work. But I am saying that you should be highly, highly cognizant during the act of lovemaking that it is a deeply spiritual activity, probably one of the most spiritual activities that two human beings can engage in together. So it's sacred. When did you start talking to your kids about sex? Probably three years ago, um, I started taking them through uh, a few of the David Dita books. Um, okay. You know, he mm-hmm. has some great books, including Finding God in Sex, and also um, The uh, Way of the Superior Man, which has a great deal of discussion about sex and relationships. Uh, I, although I'm, I am a, a Christian, and he has a slightly different perspective on like that kind of like a Christian view of sex uh, because I, you know, I'm, I'm monogamous and, and believe in, in um, the, 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 the holiness and reverence of marriage and how special relationship that is. You know, I certainly just tell my boys certain things as, as we move through that based on what I believe uh, I've taken them through all the breathwork practices and the multi-orgasmic male. We've gone through the entire anatomy and physiology book on the reproductive system and this, this has all been over about the past three years or so. And then we have a very open household in terms of they know any question they have for mom or for dad about sex, about their bodies, about anything. Like, you know, I, I grew up in a home where much of that was like forbidden fruit. You just didn't yeah. talk about it. Right. So I turned to things like, you know, porn and videos and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, or my friends to learn about sex. Whereas I think in an ideal scenario, a child should be learning about that from their parent with, in a responsible, open and transparent fashion at yeah. home. Yeah. So you started sort of talking 
talking with specifics around the age of 10 with, uh, your, nine with 10. your boys nine yeah. or ten yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah ella's starting we have a almost eight-year-old daughter and she's starting to ask like peripheral questions mm-hmm. more like how are humans made you know yeah. like not so much nuts and bolts but like sure process of where do humans come from right yeah and so yeah I, th- I think that um depending on your relationship with your child it can be beneficial to actually not necessarily wait until they ask the questions yeah but but i mean honestly just say okay well you know this is the time when i want to spend a week you know this this, this is why I, I map everything out so i'm like okay march 11th through 19th we're getting the anatomy book and every night we're gonna you know because you can't fabricate new hours but we're like we're skipping story time and instead i'm taking them through the reproductive system in the anatomy book for seven nights in a row you know during this time block cool. or yeah. we're going to go visit the website your brain on porn and we're going to spend an hour on that together watching videos and learning about how it affects your neurotransmitters and what porn is and how to contextualize that properly, you know, in terms of your relationship to the opposite sex and objectification, you know, everything else that might be wrapped up around that industry. Um, and perhaps another time we're going to do breath work in the sauna with the pelvic locks and with moving energy up and down the spine. But during that process, I'm going to explain to them that during the act of lovemaking, that's also a tactic you can use. It's not just for breath work. And so, you know, I just kind of weave things in. Well, and um, you unschool your kids, right? We do. So yeah. is it kind of like, it, it becomes, from my impression anyways, is when you're, when you're unschooling, it, there's just sort of a continual learning process that's right. very flowy throughout the day and throughout the weeks and the year like it yeah and it's kind of weird because you often have these moments you're like oh crap nobody's teaching my kid that like right. sometimes you'll think of something because it's right. so easy when they're going to school and you're like yeah that's taken care that's of totally, they're good yeah, taught that covered. and then you know so for me you know every month when i'm reviewing their schedule you know what core blocks of curriculum or what studies or what field trips or what activities or tutors or sports or anything else they're engaged in you know i i actually have to pay a lot closer attention because like whatever I put on their plates or they choose and cooperate with me to put on their plates. Like that's what they're learning. And, and sometimes I get nervous. I'm like, are they doing enough math or like, should they be reading at a different level? And you second guess yourself a lot, but it's a, it's a ton of fun. Yeah. Like I, I honestly like love to see them just learning in an experiential based way, just from life's lessons. Yeah. Well, I feel like, you know, we do a lot of raising of Ella and I realize this is off topic, but like, in a very like open and honest way and whenever she has questions about stuff we we do our best to be super honest and super straightforward age appropriate but like we'll answer any question she asks and so i feel like there's a certain um instead of relying on teachers to Mm -hmm. to provide the education like she looks to us for for a lot of her knowledge and her understanding one thing that that comes to mind because I just started doing this and it's super powerful and uh, I, I wish I'd started doing it earlier is about once a week with your kids like for for about four years we've been doing eye gazing where you know around once a week or so we'll just put on a song play a nice you know song that's you know usually like a yoga or a meditation track or Enya or whatever something that's kind of cool in the background and you just look at each other for like four or five minutes just deeply into your child's eyes and you can also do this with your lover uh, but you're, you're just looking at each other you know completely in the eyes of the window to the soul and sometimes you'll say sweet nothings like you know I love you or you're getting so big or you know, or they'll say something like, I'm so grateful for you, dad, but it's not talking as much as just looking. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then we started throwing this question in. So, so you look at them and, and you're looking straight into your eyes and you're like, how's your life right now on a scale of one to 10 and what would take it to a 10? 
And it's really interesting just to see what comes up when you're in that special place, you know, looking into each other's eyes and, um, and, and you just, you, you learn interesting things each week from your kids as you ask them that question, you know, and you'd think a kid would, would start to learn to be manipulative and say something like, well, (laughs) ice cream and pizza night every night. (laughs) Yeah. But, but you know, like, like the last time we did it, um, it was so cute. Like my son, Taron, he said, I wish I had more time to pray and meditate in the morning. (laughs) I'm like, wow, I would not have said that when I was like 13 years old. And um, then, then my other son said that he wanted to play more family games at dinner that were like more widely varied. We kind of got in a game rut and it's like, Oh, okay, well that's, that's good to know. But sometimes that eye gazing practice of just stopping looking, asking your kid, the one to 10 question, it can be kind of meaningful. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like you can get some surprising answers. I know this yeah. week, uh, Bex asked Ella what her favorite part of school was, and she said mindfulness, which is shocking to both of us. Um, but like, had you not asked, we wouldn't know, right? Mm-hmm. A- and then it's like, well, okay, well, how do we now incorporate mindfulness and mm-hmm. more? Because it doesn't feel like as though it's a forced thing. You, you certainly don't want mindfulness to feel like a punishment to an eight-year-old girl, right? Uh, because that's going to accomplish the opposite of what you're trying to do. Yeah, that's difficult too. Like, like choosing. Let's say you do need to discipline, and there's some punishment that needs to be doled out. Yeah. Like, I like I see a lot of parents having it be, especially like parents in fitness, which is the area I'm in, where I was like, you got a hundred extra push-ups today because you didn't take out the garbage yesterday. And that's like oh. your chore or, oh, wow. um, you know, or drop and do 30 burpees. I never use exercise as a form of punishment because I never want them to associate exercise with negativity. Yeah, yeah. Like if they didn't take out the garbage the previous day, cause that was part of their chore. Maybe they're scooping dog poop in the backyard, exactly. right. As part yeah. of their extra chore for the, for the next day yeah. or something like that. So there's some amount of, of, of discipline that occurs by never discipline with anything that would be considered positive right, right in, in the same way that you wouldn't want mindfulness to be something that you that you you know turn into a chore exactly we also try to not use i know a lot of people use food as a reward right mm-hmm. and we try to really avoid that at all costs right and it, it happens to be particularly powerful with with our daughter like she has a huge sweet tooth and so it's really mm. a, a strong driver for her but like i I try to stay far, far away from that because it can go down the road of of disordered relationships with food or yeah, disordered relationships I, I, I with activity. And it just food is something people gather around. They celebrate mm-hmm. around. Mm-hmm. They build relationships around, you know, that whole idea of breaking bread together yeah. mm-hmm. and toasting and, and singing. And so food in our house is something that you know, aside from, you know, whatever dad's quick smoothie while I'm going through a few emails in the morning, but, but actual, you know, celebration of food is a really fun affair. Mm -hmm. And so I'm actually okay with food being a reward. If it's not the food, that's the reward, but it's like, you know, oh man, you just, you crush, you know, every single book report that dad had you do like this entire month. Like I had nothing to correct. It was amazing. We're going to go out to a restaurant and, you know, like we're, we're taking mom and your brother and we're going to, you know, we're, we're going to go to a restaurant and, and walk and go see the ducks by the pond and go, then go up and have an amazing meal and you get your own mocktail and, yeah, you know, and, and turn an, into exactly. experience. That's an experience. So I think it depends on how food is, is given as love. And if it's yeah. part of like a greater experience, it's okay. But if it's like, you did it, you get to go 
pick out the Snickers bar that you never get to eat from the gas station and have the biggest Snickers bar because you and it's like that I think that creates a different scenario that's an important distinction yeah, yeah right because you. then it also puts that on a pedestal as though it's something that one should strive to right. attain right. oh if I do even better maybe I'll get the king size Snickers bar right. next time right it, it, it can create especially for people who who grow up I've noticed like a, a train to eat eat to train mm-hmm. type of like you see this a lot in exercisers it's like I'm gonna crush myself in the gym this morning so I can go have that 1000 calorie acai peanut butter bowl because I love it, but I got to go punish myself first because I was going to hate myself afterwards if I just wake up and go eat that. And then, you know, they finish that and they're like, I got to like, I got to go for a 90 minute hike on the treadmill before dinner now because I had that big bowl. And then dinner rolls around. They're like, oh, I did a 90 minute hike on the treadmill after dinner. I know that ice cream is there in the freezer. And you see people starting to reward themselves for physical activity. And then once they've rewarded themselves, realize they need more physical activity to burn off that reward. And it's right. this vicious cycle. Right. A vicious cycle. Do you think that that is that vicious cycle that one in particular or cycles like it that sort of negativity cycle where one behavior that you know is is hypothetically good maybe it's overwork right um do you think that's driven by you know a lack of a certain fulfillment or or feeling whole or yeah um, spiritual it fitness. St. <laughs> uh, Augustine called it the God-shaped abyss. You know, another author named Blaise Pensies, a, a, a religious author, referred to it as as a God-shaped hole in one's heart. Mm-hmm. Um, it's this idea, and there's even a book about this called Eternity in Their Hearts. Like every human being has a sense deep down inside that there's something bigger out there, as you might hearing a Disney princess song, you know, something more to life than this. Anybody who's had a, it's kind of funny because, you know, most like atheists who go into a a plant medicine for experience, for example, don't walk out as atheists. Like all of a sudden they're like aware that there's something greater out there because they've experienced God or light or love or Christ or something of that nature. And it's this idea that because we have that longing in our souls for something greater, sometimes we're like, oh, that's something greater is me doing an Ironman or climbing the seven peaks or losing X percentage of body fat or becoming a millionaire or a billionaire or learning how to memorize a deck of cards or, you know, becoming a virtuoso on the violin or eating a whole bunch of food or just exercising myself into a pit because something has got to scratch that itch. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that until you feel the God-shaped hole in your heart with what actually fills a God-shaped hole, which is God, then you're always searching to a certain extent. And so I think that one of the best ways to fill that God-shaped hole in your heart is by beginning to care for your soul, which is what I talk about, you know, for example, in Fit Soul, the spiritual disciplines like meditation and gratitude and journaling and silence and solitude and prayer and charity and service and relationships and love and all these things that we can tend to neglect when life gets busy because some of the carnal things we do, you know, like working out or going on a walk in the sunshine or something like that, like they feel, we can feel them right away. Whereas sometimes you can't necessarily feel every aspect of soul care right away, but that's the one part of you that's going to go on to exist for all eternity. Therefore, that is arguably the one part of you that you should be caring about the most so that you can experience that fulfillment. And that, that's what Fit Soul is about. That's why I did the Spiritual Disciplines Journal also to help equip people with what they needed to develop a fit soul. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think until someone actually finds that fulfillment, whether it is food or anything else, they're always going to be trying to fill that hole with something.
Ryan, you got to fill that hole with something. Got to fill it with something, man. <laughs> we are so mature. <laughs> <laughs> I'm turning 40 this month. Oh, my God. It's my birthday month. We're going to do a birthday Dude, episode I'm boycotting soon. 40. You should boycott 40 with me. I, I'm either 39 or 41. I will never be 40. Or your age is going to be redacted. Exactly. On all of our documents. Yes. Well, thank you to Ben Greenfield and Rebecca Shearn for joining us today. Check out Ben's podcast. It is called the Ben Greenfield Fitness Podcast. You can also check out Bex's podcast. It is called How to Love. I co-host that with her. You can find that on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts, or at howtolove.show. Now, Ryan, before we get into our added value segment this week, do you have anything special for us? Um, no. Am I supposed to have something special for you? How about these listener comments and insights? Check them out. <laughs> Hi, Josh and Ryan. It's Connor from Toronto. I'm 17, and I'm out finishing grade 11 right now, so exams are coming up, and my mental clutter is coming to all-time high right now, so I use something to help me focus on studying and writing that I recently started using, and it's an app called Pomodoro Timer, so that's P-O-M-O-D-O-R-O. It's a really simple timer app, and it's based on a kitchen timer that uses a productivity practice called the Pomodoro Technique. It's a time management method that's used to break down work into intervals, traditionally 25 minutes of concentrated work separated by short five-minute breaks. So after a number of cycles, you reward yourself with a long break that's usually 15 minutes. And on the app, you can adjust the duration of the work sessions and breaks. You can set daily targets, and you can even catalog your progress over time. So I found it that over time. I've been working more productively and getting more out of my study sessions, and I hope you can find value in that too. Thanks. Hi, my name is Natalie. I'm from Cochrane, Ontario. So I want to start by saying that I really enjoyed your recent Stop Buying podcast. I would like to share how I limit my shopping on Amazon. I only pay with gift cards when shopping online, so once I have added the items to my cart, I then have to buy a gift card at the store and apply it to my account before finalizing my purchases. This makes buying online less convenient and it allows me to think before I buy. If it is not worth my time going to a store and buying a gift card, then I probably don't need the items in my cart. Just a reminder, we're going to be talking about the minimalist diet. We're going to talk about letting go of ideology and much more about minimalist wellness. That's this week on Patreon. That's the maximal episode this Thursday. Patreon.com slash The Minimalist. Now, Ryan, for our added value this week, what do you got? There's a songwriter. His name's, uh, you've heard of BJ Thomas, I assume, mm, maybe. I'm not as cool as you, man. Okay. <laughs> Sean, you'd say 50s, 60s, 60s mostly. Uh, yeah. Oh, get out of here. Oh, raindrops keep falling. Nice. Okay. And okay. so he, someone sent me this. I, apparently, he passed away recently. Aw. And, and so, but he had this song. I mean, so the name of our book is Love People Use Things. Mm -hmm. It comes from the, the epigraph here at the beginning. There are two people. There is the Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen in 1935 who said, you must remember to love people and use things rather than to love things and use people. Mm -hmm. And then almost a century later, the pop philosopher Drake. Drizzy! 
<laughs> he said, "Wish you." Would, he sang, "Wish you would learn to love people and use things, and not the other way around." <laughs> I really want to sing it like Drake. <laughs> Wish you would love things. <laughs> it's like Drake's in the room with me. A very ill Drake. <laughs> anyway, um, well, there's a song from B.J. Thomas called "Using Things and Loving People." Oh, and so you're going to hear that today. I thought it was the appropriate way to, to sum up this whole episode because mm. regardless of what your beliefs are and how closely you hold them, we all understand that life is better if we're not loving things yeah. and using people. Mm. So enjoy this song from BJ Thomas. By the way, we have a bunch more surprise questions this week like, how do you plan your meals as a minimalist, particularly when it comes to dining out? What is the most minimalist diet? Vegan? Paleo, keto, breathitarian. <laughs> are there people really who are breathitarians? You I, know what? Just tell me the maximal. For a short period of time, I assume. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I am currently, like, I'm not putting food in my body at the mm-hmm. moment. Mm-hmm. So I am right now. But we'll, we'll, we're going to investigate that a bit more. Okay. What are 10 foods that you would eliminate from the standard American diet? We're going to talk oh, to Ben and Bex about that. You know, Bex is a registered dietitian. She's a nutritionist. Ben is one of the smartest people I know when it comes to health and wellness and, and diet and exercise. Mm-hmm. Plus, we've got a million more questions for Ryan and me and Ben and Bex. And if you want to hear all that, join us on the Minimalist Private Podcast this week. Visit theminimalists.com slash support to subscribe and get your personal link so that our private podcast plays in your favorite podcast app. You know, this is the time because we have the the new monthly billing. You're supporting our studio. It's keeping us 100% advertisement-free. It allows us to pay Jordan and Sean and Jess. And so thank you for supporting the show if you are supporting the show. But you're not just donating. You are getting so much more. The maximal episode every week is much longer than this minimal. Plus, you get all of the other things that we share just on Patreon. Yeah. Theminimalists.com slash support if you'd like to subscribe. You can follow The Minimalists on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at The Minimalists. If you have a question, comment, or minimalism tip for our podcast, email us a voice memo podcast at theminimalists.com. And if you want our show notes in your inbox, sign up for our email list over at theminimalists.com. You'll also receive any new writings that we publish for free. And if you leave here today with just one message, let it be this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time.
it's got to be.